Well, Merry Christmas, Wawasee. Good to see you. Good to be with you today. Merry Christmas to all of you joining us online at home as well. Glad to have you with us. And uh, again, Pastor Dave mentioned a couple services coming up would invite you to Blue Christmas next Sunday, Christmas Eve, a week from Thursday. Christmas is a week from Friday. Can you believe it? That's incredible. It's coming so fast. And then also that Sunday, one, one other thing to mention, though, just to make sure uh, don't let this slide, is a week, or the, excuse me, the Sunday after Christmas, uh, we're only going to have one service that morning. Typically, that's one of the lower attended Sundays of the year, just as families are traveling and, and doing all that stuff. We'll see. This year may be a little different, I know. But we're just going to do one service, 10 a.m., and so I hope you can join us on uh, the 27th at 10 a.m., and we'll stream that on Facebook, just like we are right now. But hey, I wonder, uh, do you know what happened June 2nd, 1953? Do you know? I'm disappointed. It, it was billed as the most memorable day of days. Still no idea, huh? That's okay, I wouldn't have known either. It was the coronation, though, of Queen Elizabeth II. Her coronation was on June 2nd, 1953, and it was called the day of days most memorable when the queen was uh, coronated and crowned queen. And on that day, Elizabeth II was crowned the Queen of England at Westminster Abbey in London. And not just the Queen of England, she was also crowned, uh, maybe you didn't know this, the Queen of the whole United Kingdom, the Queen of Canada, of Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. Did you know that? I mean, her kingdom is pretty good size, isn't it? Elizabeth attended, uh, ascended excuse me, to the throne at age 25 after the death of her father, King George VI. And uh, he died, though, on February 6th, 1952, over a year prior it was well over a year before she was coronated as queen. She assumed the role right away, but the celebration didn't happen until much later for a couple of reasons. One, uh, to give time to mourn the passing of a monarch, but also, two, to allow time for the planning committee to do all the planning. It took them 14 months to plan this all out. Some of the things you just saw on the screen. 14 months for that. That's quite a party, quite a festivity. And, uh, you know, during the service, then uh, Elizabeth took an oath and she was anointed with holy oil. She was also invested with robes and regalia as the new queen. Well, um, here you can see an image of her robe and just the train of her robe and how long it was and really conveying her majesty and her authority. That's, that's some symbolism we don't really see in our culture much anymore today. But it does still persist uh, in, in England, in Great Britain. I mean, uh, look at this. This is from 2019 in October. The queen on the throne at parliament, the opening of parliament, October 2019, and the train of her robe just kind of filling down below her, showing her authority as the, as the queen and the one who's seated on the throne. Well, this Christmas, uh, we're not celebrating the queen, but we are celebrating the king, King Jesus. And Isaiah got a glimpse of Jesus 
and the train of his robe seated on his throne. Did you know that? And we're going to look at that this morning in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And uh, let me pray, and then we're going we're gonna to look at that and uh, jump around to a handful of other scriptures this morning as we look at Jesus, the King of glory. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us through him. Father, we are without hope apart from your goodness, apart from your grace, apart from your love, apart from your son. Holy Spirit, would you help me today as I teach and preach your word? Would Jesus be made much of by my words, Lord? And let my words be your words. Um, May we leave changed by having a glimpse of Jesus' glory, of knowing more of who he is and of what he's done for us. And uh, Holy Spirit, work now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the king that Isaiah sees seated on the throne, King Jesus, is not only king of kings and lord of lords, he is Do you know this? He's fully God. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Now, I'm always a little bit surprised, but but maybe there'll be some of you as well who, even if they've gone to church for a long time, haven't put together the fact that Jesus is God Almighty. He's referred to as the Son of God because of his uh, position in the Trinity. And I know this can be a little bit confusing, but it is what scripture teaches, that, that we worship one God, in three persons, uh, three distinct persons that are all fully God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son, I believe, King Jesus, is uh, the, the one person of the Trinity, the one member of the Godhead whom we will see in heaven. You, you can argue with me on this, but um, that's okay. We can talk about it. I, I think Jesus is the, the one person of the Godhead that we will see. I don't think we'll actually see the Father or see the Spirit because if we see Jesus, we've seen God. And that's who we'll see seated on the throne. That's who Isaiah sees here. In fact, um, as Isaiah sees the king, Isaiah's unique experience, it starts off like this in Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, well, this is important. Who's, who's King Uzziah? Well, I thought we were talking about King Jesus, Josh. So, well, this is the context in which Isaiah sees Jesus. So I think it's important for us just to get our, our heads around the context of what's happening, right? We don't read scripture in, in a vacuum and, and these things are historical things that have happened. And so this is the year that King Uzziah dies. Well, who is King Uzziah? I'm glad you asked. It wasn't the year 1953, or 1952 when King George died, but it was the year 740 BC when King Uzziah died. And Uzziah, the record of him shows up in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And here's what it tells us about Uzziah. Excuse me, Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. I think I told you Elizabeth was 25 when she came uh, to the throne, but he was 16 years old. Can you imagine? And then he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This is is an important verse about Uzziah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then in verse five, we read this about him, that he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And as long as, As Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him 
prosper. As long as he chose to obey, God blessed. But unfortunately for, for Uzziah, there were days where he didn't. He chose to sin and he would suffer. Most of Uzziah's reign of those 52 years were pretty prosperous, pretty peaceful for Israel. But we get to verse 16 of this chapter and we read this, that when Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction for he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. And uh, we won't go into the whole story, but he goes in and makes a sacrifice when he shouldn't have and God strikes him with leprosy and Uzziah ends up dying a slow, painful death due to his leprosy, and he's cast out from being on the throne, and he ends up being buried among the lepers. And Isaiah, it was in the shadow of this happening that Isaiah gets a glimpse of Jesus on the throne. I mean, think of the chaos that would have caused. Imagine if, you know, we're going through a transition right now in terms of our president, right? Imagine if we had had a president who had been on the throne for 52 years, on the throne, in office for 52 years. Can you imagine? And then now there's a transition and all of a sudden you're watching TV and all the alerts start popping up that, that he's died and there's going to be a new leader. And what would that have been like? I mean, it, it would have thrown everything into chaos, and surely Isaiah had to be wondering, what is going to happen? God, God, what are you going to do? He was the only king Isaiah had ever known on the throne. And so it was in that year that Uzziah died that God reaches out to Isaiah and allows him to see the real king, the king. That's who Isaiah gets a glimpse of here in Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, so as we keep going in Isaiah 6, it says, in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. Now, in your Bible, it says, I, I saw the Lord. Lord is, is uh, with lowercase O-R-D, right? Well, sometimes in the Old Testament, when you read it, it'll be all capital letters. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes you read Lord and it's L-O-R-D, all capital letters or kind of small caps, depending on uh, the layout of your Bible. And whenever you see that with all capitals, it's a reference to the fact that it's translating the personal name of God, Yahweh. But when you see it like this, where it's not all capital letters, it, it's actually, Lord can also mean like master, like the one who's in complete control, uh, the, the king, the, the one uh, who's in full authority. And that's what Isaiah is saying is, I saw the Lord, I saw uh, the, the ultimate monarch, the ultimate king, the, the Lord, and he was on his throne. Now, I've said Isaiah was seeing Jesus, and we know this because the apostle John uh, says this after quoting from Isaiah in, in, in John uh, chapter 12. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. John tells us that, that Isaiah saw Jesus. That's who is on the throne. So we have confidence. This is Jesus Christ that Isaiah is beholding. And, and Jesus is eternal. He is fully God. And he, he does. He shows up multiple times in the Old Testament. <clears throat> he doesn't just show up for the first time at Christmas, but he shows up multiple times in the Old Testament because he's God. He's eternal. And uh, what is he doing when Isaiah sees him? 
The king had just died, right? So surely, Jesus, he's probably wringing his hands a little bit. Right? I mean, Isaiah probably was. I bet Isaiah was a little bit. Surely he's maybe just pacing back and forth, like, I don't know what's going to happen. Is that what he's doing? Is he just tapping his foot, just wondering about the future, biting his fingernails? No, he's seated. He's sitting on the throne. He's seated. He's settled. He's not struggling or searching. He's certain in full control. That's how Isaiah sees Jesus Christ. Just, just there on the throne, totally in control. You know, that really puts into perspective anything we're carrying on our hearts today, doesn't it? That whatever it is we might be find ourselves pacing back and forth about or, or wringing our hands about or anxious about. When I look back at 2020 and see just all the craziness that has happened, guess, guess how Jesus is dealing with that? Seated on his throne, completely in control, unfazed. Does he care? He absolutely cares. He cares deeply. More than you can imagine, he cares about what's going on in your life. But he's not worried. He's not anxious about it. He's seated on his throne. And, and look at this throne. As Isaiah describes it, it's, it's high and lifted up. So this isn't just any throne. This is like the throne of the king, a high and exalted throne. Uh, Jesus is transcendent. He's full of glory. He's God almighty. You got to get this. He is God. And, and the train of his robe, check this out. Remember Elizabeth's robe? The train of her robe, it took, what, probably seven or eight ladies to help carry that in behind her as she walked in for her coronation. And even as she was seated, we saw her in parliament with the robe kind of draped down, make it out to about maybe the second or third row here this morning. But look at, look at Jesus' robe. If that's a description of her majesty, check out Jesus' majesty. The, the train of his robe filled the temple. It filled the temple. Like it wasn't just down to the first couple rows. It was like all the way back, maybe doubled back again and again and again. And it, it's just incredible glory and majesty of this king on the throne. Like that train conveys incredible power and majesty. And it's curious to me that Isaiah, he recognizes that his throne is high and lifted up, but what he sees, what he describes first, he's, he's bowed down before the king. Like he sees the train of his robe before him. Well, that's because this king that he's in front of, the reason there's so much grandeur, so much majesty, such a large train is because this king is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. It's, it's God almighty. It's Jesus Christ. And Jesus is 100% God. He is fully God. Fully man, fully God. That, that's a theological term called the, the hypostatic union. That Jesus didn't, uh, he didn't get rid of any of his deity when he put on humanity. He retained all of it. He just simply didn't avail himself of it at times while he walked the earth. It's like he didn't pull out his God card. <laughs> he lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so his deity was veiled, but he, he lived fully in his humanity, but he never, that, that's heresy to say that he ever let go of his deity. 
He always retained it and always had it. And he is and was and will be forever 100% God. Now, uh, we're going to skip ahead here to the New Testament for a bit, to Hebrews chapter 1, because Hebrews chapter 1 is a passage among many, but one of my favorites that just uh, speaks of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's a fantastic passage of scripture. And, and let's read this together, and you can, you can read along with me here as I, as I read it. It'll be on the screen, but um, uh, you can look it up in your own Bible as well. But, but just notice the description of Jesus as God. We'll read the first three verses and then we'll come back to verse two, kind of walk through it. Long ago, the writer of Hebrews says that many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Remember the prophets? Uh, we saw last week a prophet is somebody who speaks God's words to humanity, right? To people. But the writer says, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down as king at the right hand of God's majesty. Well, let's unpack this a little bit. This is a description of Jesus' deity, the fact that he is God. First, in verse two, in these days he has spoken. He, he's the initiator. He took the initiative. To take the initiative, you have to be first. Jesus was there speaking to us. He's spoken to us by his son. And not only this, but look at this. He's, look how it describes his son, whom he appointed the what? The heir of how many things? All things. So what's that tell you? What does Jesus own? Everything. Like it is all his. As we like to say, it is all about Jesus. And that's not to neglect the father because John tells us the father delights to exalt the son. And it's not to neglect the spirit because uh, John also tells us the spirit, Jesus tells us the spirit does everything that he hears from the son. He always exalts the son. It's all about Jesus. He's fully God. He's, he's the initiator. He's the owner of all things. Check out this. Did you know this? Through whom, through Jesus also, he created the world. The world was created through Jesus. This isn't the only place in the New Testament it says this. Colossians 1 is another example where we, where we read that Jesus is the creator of all things. He, he created the universe and he holds it all together. Jesus is the creator. Have you thought about that? He's the agent of creation. And then in verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the exact imprint of his nature. Now you and I are created in God's image, meaning that we're, we're like him to some degree. We reflect him in a unique way among every other part of creation, humanity reflects God in a very unique way, bearing his image. But it doesn't say that. And, and look at, it doesn't say that Jesus was in God's image. It says he's the exact imprint of his nature, exact. And Paul picks up on this as well in Colossians chapter one. He, Jesus, he's speaking of, is the, the image of the invisible God. 
not in the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is God. And to deny his deity is heresy. It just is. He is God Almighty. Should I say it again? He is. He's the exact imprint of his nature, the writer of Hebrews tells us. So in other words, what that means is if if I want to know what God is like, where can I look? At Jesus. If I want to know what God is like, I look to Jesus because he's the exact imprint, the exact image. He's the one who makes the invisible God known. The visible image of God. For instance, 2 Corinthians, I mean, there's all kinds of scriptures. Paul talks about Christ who is the image of God. I'll show you a couple other scriptures here. Jesus said uh, to Philip, have I been with you so long? See, Philip asked, he wanted to, he said, is this the time, Jesus, where you're gonna, you're gonna show us the Father? You're gonna show him to us? And, and Jesus is like, have, you been, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is like, I'm God. If you want to know what God looks like, Jesus says, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I wonder what Philip was thinking in that moment. Maybe, huh? I wonder if he had totally put that together yet. Probably not, until Jesus tells him. And... Jesus himself, no one has ever seen God, or John, excuse me, writes about Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, John 1, but he, Jesus, has made him known. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. There's some other scriptures in your notes there you can look up on your own to see more of those truths. But, but also, if you want to know who you are, who you truly are, who you're made to be, you can look to Jesus, the King of glory. Because Jesus is the image of God and we are made in his image. We're made to reflect him. We're made to be like him in a unique way among everything else in creation. Humanity is, in essence, God's signature on creation. You know, when I teach our Bible instruction class, um, I, I compare Bob Ross and his painting to how God created everything. And at the end of Bob Ross' painting, come to Bix sometime, you'll learn, you'll see it all. Uh, but, but when you see Bob Ross paint, do you know what he, what's he do at the very end? You ever watched him paint? You know what I'm talking about? The guy with the big afro? Talks about the happy trees and all their friends. And he paints them, you can look it up on Netflix. And at the very end, he signs his name in bright red. And he signs Ross. Why? To say, hey, I made this. This is mine. That's his signature on the painting, right? In essence, when we're created in God's image, we're, we're like him. We're his signature on his creation, the crown jewel of his creation, the stamp on it that says, hey, this is mine. That's who you are. And if you want to know who you are, then you can look at Jesus. I mean, Genesis 1 tells us that God created us in his own image, In the image of God, he created us. Male and female, he created us. When it says he created man there, it means mankind, all of us. We're created in God's image. We bear his likeness. But Jesus 
actually is his likeness because he is God. Let's keep reading in, in Hebrews chapter four, just about, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter one, about uh, uh, Jesus' deity. In verse three again, uh, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the sustainer. He's the thing holding it all together. You, you want a great passage on this? Go, go read uh, Colossians chapter one, verses 15 and following. Jesus Christ holds all things together. He's in control. And not only this, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's worthy as the king of glory. Well, uh, the writer of Hebrews goes on talking about Jesus saying, he's become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And what he's arguing here, without getting too deep into it, is just that Jesus isn't just another messenger from God. An angel means messenger. He's not just this other messenger or another prophet. He, he's much more than that. In fact, check this out. He goes, as compared to the angels, which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you? Or did, did God ever say to any of the angels, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, by describing Jesus as the firstborn, it's not describing him as being created and being born, but in, the, as, in terms of his position of authority as the firstborn, the one who inherits and, and, and owns everything. Uh, it brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all of God's angels worship him. <laughs> who are we to worship? No one but God alone. So if, if God is telling the angels to worship Jesus, Jesus is God. And of the angels, he says, uh, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. All through here, uh, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Psalms and from the Old Testament, where it speaks of, of God sending uh, his message through messengers like, like the wind, like the fire, I mean, in a way that's just very visible and but of the son, he's not just a messenger. He, of the son, he says this, your throne, O God, notice he calls the son God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness. The, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Excuse me. Verse nine, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. This is God the Father speaking this of God the Son. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Revelation speaks of the heavens and the earth being rolled up in the end. And like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no and friends, the king that Isaiah sees seated on the throne here is King Jesus, and he is eternally, fully God, and he is eternally existing. He bears God's attributes. Jesus is, is eternal. Did you know that? I remember just as a kid growing up, you know, uh, going to a pretty traditional church, uh, being taught all the stories of the Bible and Christmas and I remember like my, my head just going, huh? 
When somebody explained to me for the first time that Jesus is eternal, that he's always existed, I'm like, how does that work? But he was born at Christmas, right? So wasn't that the start? No, he's, he's been around forever. What happens at Christmas, we already talked about it, but Jesus adds humanity to his deity. It's the opposite, by the way, of every other religion that you come across, which would tell you that if you're good enough as, as a person, then you could add deity to your humanity. If you're good enough, then God will love you and you could become like a God yourself. Christianity is the exact opposite where it, where God himself puts on flesh, becomes human, retains his deity, but in his humanity, he never sins, he never earns the penalty of our sin. And yet what does he do? He pays the penalty for my sin and for your sin by dying on the cross and rising from the grave so that he could give us his righteousness. That's the gospel. And he is, he's eternal. In fact, uh, one time Jesus uh, was being faced with, well, many times he was faced with opponents to his message and some of the religious leaders and, and they came to him and Jesus told them that Abraham had seen his day. And he's like, man, if, if Abraham had seen it, oh man, they, he, he would have loved it. I mean, the, they, they would have they worshiped me. And they go, hold on. Whoa, what do you mean Abraham. That's like a few thousand. Dude, you're like 50. You're not even 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? Come on. What's going on here? Now, Jesus, to demonstrate his eternal nature, he could have simply said, well, before Abraham was, I was. But he goes another step beyond that. And look at what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Like, why is that significant, Joshua? Well, because when God reveals his personal name to Moses in the Old Testament, what's the name that he tells him? I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I'm independent of time. I am, I am, I always am, I always am. Jesus is declaring for himself the personal name of God. That's what Yahweh means. I am, I be always. And at this, they were ready to stone him because <laughs> they knew immediately what he was claiming. He was claiming deity. And ultimately, that's why Jesus was crucified because they accused him of blasphemy. But when you are God and you say, I'm God, it's not blasphemy. <laughs> that was Jesus. Before Abraham was, I am well, as the great I am, Jesus, on his throne, he's fully God as king and he's eternally existent in, see if you know this word, in resplendent glory. Have you used that word lately? Resplendent? Guys, just tell your wife when you get home today, you look resplendent. Resplendent's kind of an old English word. It comes from a Latin word which means uh, shining out. That's the idea of resplendent, resounding splendor, just of uh, attractive and impressive worth, richly colorful, just almost undescribable. That's resplendent. 
And Jesus, as God, he's fully God, he exists forever, past, present, future, in resplendent glory, always shining forth. You know, in fact, uh, as we read the Christmas story, have you watched the Charlie Brown Christmas lately? We like to watch that in our house. And uh, you get to where Linus, Charlie Brown's like, can anybody tell me what Christmas is about? And Linus gets up and starts reading or quoting from Luke chapter two. And as he's reading, he reads about uh, the birth of Jesus. And then there were, who, who was it hanging out in the fields nearby? The shepherds, right? There were, it says actually they were living in the fields with their flock. And then suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And of that angel, it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. It wasn't their glory. It was the glory of God that was shining forth. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And then they, and the shepherds were filled with great fear. And then the, the angels end up saying, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born a savior in the city of David, Christ the Lord, right? And over and over, you see God's glory shining forth. We already saw in Hebrews that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's, he's always imaging, always shining forth, radiating out God's glory. In Revelation, do you know the description of heaven? Uh, we're told in Revelation, I think actually in chapter 22, that there won't be darkness. But in 21 and in 22, we read that, that the entire city of heaven will be lit by the presence of Jesus, by his glory. See, it's the glory of God that gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Jesus just shining forth in resplendent glory. You know, to shine forth, I think of it like um, this flashlight of mine. This is kind of a cool flashlight. It's very bright. You ready for it? It's really bright. I just kind of blinded myself looking at it. And uh, it, it's shining forth light. And Jesus' glory is always shining forth. But it's, it's more than just light. Because like with, with, with light, I can kind of manipulate it. I can just kind of turn it on, turn it off, work up a lather, and hey, check it out, right? But when God's glory shines, uh, my friend Jeff, who's a pastor in Chicagoland, he describes God's glory as this, that his glory is God's character on display We've been reading from Isaiah and Isaiah gets a glimpse of Jesus' glory and of his character. We're gonna see that in a moment. But uh, also there's another guy in scripture who experiences God's glory more than anyone else recorded in scripture, any other man or woman, and it's Moses. And Moses and all the experiences he had of God's glory, he saw Jesus in the burning bush, Right? Next is chapter three, and he sees God work in power to rescue his people from Egypt with the plagues and Passover and part the Red Sea and being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And then he goes up to Mount Sinai where he hears audibly the voice of the Lord and all the people who were with him around the mountain heard God give out the 10 commandments. And there was no one who experienced God's glory more than Moses. And yet... Check out what Moses says in Exodus chapter 33. Moses says to the Lord, he says, please, Lord, show me your glory. It's kind of ironic that this guy who's seen it more than anybody else is just asking for more. And why? Because he knows how great it is. He knows like the experience of that. And 
I talk about my son Charlie a lot. There's going to come a day where he's getting old enough. I'm not going to be able to talk about him as much, but he's going to be five in a few weeks. And one of the things he loves to wrestle or, you know, somebody to put him on their shoulders, swing him around and just rough house. And after you do something like that, guess what his words are? He's cackling, catching his breath. Do it again, again. Let's do it again. Dad's huffing and puffing and out of breath and ready to take a break. But he wants more. Why? Because he loves it. That's Moses here. He's seen it, but he knows it's just the tip of the iceberg. He just wants more of God's glory. He knows it's the only thing that's going to satisfy, the only thing that's going to fulfill him. Every other pleasure in life falls short of the glory of God. I mean, by a mile. And, And God is gracious to Moses and he says to him in verse 19, I will and I'll, I'll make my, listen, listen to how God says this, I'll make my goodness pass before you. When Moses asks for God's glory, he's not simply asking uh, for a light to shine, right? And God doesn't say, I'm just gonna you know, shine a light in your face and blind you. No, he says, I'm gonna let my goodness pass before you. God's glory is is his character on display. And if God's character is not on display, it's not his glory. When his glory is on display, his character is on display. His invisible attributes are made visible. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. The tangible shining of his nature on display for Moses. So what happens is uh, Moses is on Mount Sinai. God leads him to a cave. He kind of puts him behind a cleft rock there and uh, says, Moses, are you ready? Moses like, yeah. Because, okay, well, uh, puts his hand over his eyes, covers his eyes because, you know, if you would see God face to face, if you would see his glory and behold it, you'd surely die. The text tells us that as well. And so... uh, God covers his eyes and then he passes before him. And <clears throat> Moses in that moment, you can imagine, I mean, is, you've kind of looked at a light with your eyes closed, right? And you can still just behold the light and uh, the shining of it. And, he, and my, my guess is maybe he felt the warmth of God's presence pass before him. And as God does this, God audibly declares his glory to Moses and describes it to him. Check out how God describes his glory, which is his character. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. There there it is here in terms of his personal name. Yahweh, Yahweh. I am, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Now again, put yourself in Moses' spot. Your eyes are covered, but just brightness surrounds you and you hear the voice of God saying, I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He goes on to say, I won't forget about sin. I won't uh, ignore the guilty, but primarily the way he describes himself is as a God of love and compassion and mercy and grace. And as Moses beholds his glory, God is telling him of his character. Well, this description of these attributes of God, 
it's become so popular that, that theologians actually describe it as the divine attribute formula. And it's quoted, these, these two verses are quoted, six and seven, 31 times in the Bible. It's thir 31 times they quote what God said to Moses about himself. It's the most quoted scripture by scripture in the Bible. It's quoted more times than any other scripture within the Bible. This description of who God is. You know, Moses is like, show me your glory. God's like, you, you want to know who I am? Here's who I am. I'm the Lord. I'm, I'm a God who's merciful and who's gracious, who's, who's, Moses, I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. Maybe you need to hear this today. This is who God is. This is his heart toward you. He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Who will by no means clear the guilty, but will meet out his wrath for sin. But see, the great news is that if you trust Jesus Christ, that wrath is meted out on Jesus for you. And so you get his righteousness. You get his goodness. Well, that's, who, that's what God is like. If you're, if you're like, yeah, I know what God is like. I've studied some of it. Well, then you've beheld God's glory. Do you get that to some degree? If you know about who God is, you have beheld some of his glory. If you've trusted him and become a Christian, I would argue you have beheld some of his glory because you, you've known of his abounding love for you. You've known of his mercy toward you. You've known of his grace to you. And like Mo, you're like, Mo, oh, I gotta have more of that. So Moses' prayer, show us your glory is it was a prayer we can pray all the time. Show us more of who you are. Let us know who you are, Lord. It's a fantastic prayer. And the same God that Moses beheld is the one Isaiah saw. See, as we close, let's flip back to Isaiah chapter six. We had heard uh, Isaiah's description of, of seeing the king seated on the throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. And then above him, uh, above Jesus, stood the seraphim. Well, in, in English, if you write a word in English, if you want to make it plural, what do you do to it? You didn't know you were going to get a grammar lesson, right? You had an S to the end, right? So if uh, I have a flashlight, if I have many, I have flashlights. Well, in Hebrew, you add im to the end, I am, in, our, in English, transliterated. And so what, what Isaiah is describing, he's just describing what, I, what he sees. Uh, seraph means burning one. Seraphim means burning ones. So that's Isaiah's description of these guys he sees standing around the throne. Dude, they were like burning. They're on fire. Like that's the best way I can describe them. Just on fire, flaming, bright, glorious, off the charts, right? Now, if you saw somebody and you described them as burning one, <laughs> would you be maybe a little nervous about being around them? But then look, look at this description. Each of these guys, though, they had six wings, these creatures. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. 
Well, why is he covering his face? What's he afraid of? These are, these are burning ones. If I'm Isaiah, I'm maybe a little afraid of them. What are they afraid of? That means I ought to be afraid of what they're afraid of. And one called to another with his eyes covered, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, Lord of glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. And over and over they would call this day and that holy, holy, holy. Now, if, if you and I describe something with a certain attribute, we would say that's very whatever, right? Um, you know, if you, uh, you get home today and you have lunch, you have dinner, you might uh, say to whoever made it, oh, that was, that was delicious. That was very delicious. But if you really wanted to emphasize it, you would say that's delicious, delicious. Loved it. But in, in Hebrew, if you want to really, really, really emphasize it, you repeat it three times. Being totally unique in its class, unparalleled. Delicious, delicious, delicious. Try that tonight at dinner. Right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy means separate, set apart. He's completely different, of a different class. He's without sin and perfect. And in fact, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. That his voice just it shakes the whole place and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, I said, woe is me. Immediately this understanding of his sinfulness, of his unworthiness. Woe is me, I, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To behold the glory of God is certain death. And as we continue, we see here that beholding Jesus' glory changes us. It reveals to us who we are in our sin, that we are more desperately wicked than we ever feared. But these next two verses are powerful because they reveal to us that we're more wonderfully loved than we ever dreamed. Check this out. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. If you're Isaiah in this moment, you just said, woe is me, you're, you're feeling it, right? Like just that pit in your stomach, you know you're, and then one of these guys who are on fire grabs a coal and he's flying at you with it in tongs. What are you thinking? Dude, make it quick. <laughs> just make it quick. Like just take me out fast. Don't let it hurt too bad. But look what happens. He touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, in the Old Testament, if somebody who was unclean came in the presence of somebody who was clean, so somebody, maybe in our day, let's just ramp it up, somebody who has tested positive is in contact with somebody who's still not tested positive, what happens to that person in the workplace these days or at school? You have to quarantine. 
you're unclean and you're out for a while. Well, when somebody who is unclean, like Isaiah, would come into the presence of somebody who is clean, surely that would make that person unclean. Woe is me. I'm going to die. But what's incredible about Jesus, the king of righteousness, is that, and the king of glory, is that uh, our uncleanness before him, when he touches us, he doesn't become unclean. We become clean. And he makes us pure. And he makes us new. And friends, it's a simple act of faith that you become a Christian and that Jesus changes you because of his glory and his righteousness. Moses, after he saw the Lord's glory, his face shone. And friends, as you behold Jesus for who he is and trust him by faith, he makes you new. Trust him. Let me pray.